Lord Jesus, we thank you for the movement of your Holy Spirit. We thank you for your involvement in our lives. We thank you, as Doris has pointed out this morning, that you see us, you embrace us, and you know us better than we know ourselves. And this morning, as we open up your scripture and uh, ask you to speak to us, to reveal to us that which you have purposed for us to see and hear today. I pray that you give me the ability to speak words that would be anointed by you and that the words that come out of my mouth would have been authored by you and that more importantly, that they would land in such a way that your Holy Spirit could minister to us today. Speak to us, Lord God, in the name of Jesus. Everybody said, Amen. Amen. Today we're going to take a respite from the letter of James. Uh, so if you've turned to the book of James, that's great, but we're not going to go there. <clears throat> um, this is Palm Sunday, and uh, uh, I wanted to... Uh, Paul wrote to Titus about teaching sound doctrine. And it's important that in this day and age that we have what we would consider to be sound doctrine. There, There's a lot of uh, teaching. Doctrine just means teaching. There's a lot of teaching going on today, in my opinion, that is not very sound. Amen. And... Uh, and I, I would I would like to say, and I think I'm right in saying that 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 is the exception rather than the rule, and yet we have that today. And so I wanted us just to deal with uh, this whole in in this season of Palm Sunday today and next Sunday, Easter Sunday, Resurrection Sunday. Uh, in this season, I wanted us to see what I'm calling God's conditional atonement. I started to call it God's conditional love, but I figured I'd lose everybody. <laughs> How many of you understand that God's love to us is unconditional, but our experiencing God's love is conditional? There's a difference. And when we, when we talk about our atonement and our redemption, our salvation, uh, there had to be a condition met. Couldn't just, well, we'll get into it. Um, today's message will take us into the idea that God's just nature required a condition to be met. And the word required is not because he's a mean ogre who's ready to kill us, but because of his just nature. By one man, and we know that one man was Adam, by one man, sin entered the world. Jesus, the last Adam, satisfied God's requirement on behalf of humanity. Uh, that's no secret. As a matter of fact, much of what you're going to hear today is not new. Uh, I used to hear people say, well, I need to hear something new. I want to hear something new. Well, Solomon wrote Ecclesiastes, there's really nothing new under the sun. And sometimes what we've heard before becomes new because it, God reveals something to us. But uh, you might have heard a lot of this. And you, then again, you may be sitting here, well, I never thought about it that way. And that's fine, too. And then uh, really what we're talking about today is that Calvary, the cross, 
and Resurrection Sunday celebrate the completion of the work of Christ to redeem mankind. When he said it is finished, teleos, he was completed what he needed to do. The writer of Hebrews tells us that when Christ had offered for all time a single, everybody say single. single. Say it again. Single. I knew you was awake. A single sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God. He sat down, in quotation marks, indicates that he had completed his work and then he could sit down at the right hand of God the Father. And so we want to, we want to be grateful today. We want to rejoice in that work and in the fact that we are, we live in that conditional atonement. Now I'm going to, there was a lot of scriptures I could have turned to, but I want to turn to Genesis 3. Uh, and that ought to be easy to find. Later on, I'm going to turn to Hebrews 10, but right now we're going to Genesis 3. And uh, I'm going to read, just read the first seven verses. Uh, and I, as usual, I'm reading from the English Standard Version. If you would stand while I read these seven verses. Now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. And he said to the woman, did God actually say you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, we may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden, but God said you shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden, neither shall you touch it lest you die. But the serpent said to the woman, you will, you will not surely die for God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be open and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food and that it was a delight to the eyes and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate. She also gave some to her husband who was with her and he ate. Then the eyes of both were opened and they saw that they were naked and they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. You can be seated. There's so much there. But I'm calling this part of what we're looking at the deceptive lie. The decept- This all begins in the Garden of Eden with the, de- with the deceptive lie. The serpent, who we know as Satan, comes along and says... To Eve, did God actually say? Did God really say that? And one of the things we have to remember is that God never told Eve, don't partake of that tree. You remember that? God never spoke to Eve and said, don't eat of that tree of knowledge of good and evil. She wasn't even around. God spoke to Adam and told him, don't eat of that tree. Adam's responsibility, once Eve was created from his rib, Adam's responsibility was to communicate to Eve that they were not supposed, and he did, evidently, because she knew that. But the serpent is saying to her, did God really say, and it was kind of easy because she didn't hear with her own ears God say. She heard her husband communicate that to her. Did he really say that? He said, because you're not really going to die because God knows. I love that part. For God knows. He, he doesn't want you to know, but God knows. 
that you will be like God. God doesn't want you to be like him. And he's, he's keeping you, he's holding you back, so to speak. How many of you understand that a lot of people think God's mission in life is to hold us back, to keep us down? It reminded me of some other words from Isaiah 14 that said, I will ascend to heaven and I, I will set my throne on high and I will make myself like the most high. These words are often Attributed to that of Lucifer, Satan. And that he would be drawing Eve into his own folly when he said, you will be like God. And so that's why he doesn't want you to partake of the fruit. This deception that he brought to Eve and really brought to Adam, we read that she he was right there. He was standing right beside her. He wasn't in another room. He wasn't on the backside of the desert. He was right there. He was listening to the whole conversation. Could have spoke up at any time. And we have our first in, first existence, our first instance of an, a male abdicating his responsibilities. And sadly to say, we still have that problem today. This deception caters to... An unchecked personal ambition. There's a certain amount of ambition that is useful and helpful, but too much personal ambition gets beyond God's ambition for us. So it caters to that personal ambition, and that makes us desire to be equal to, and in some cases, above God. And this is one of the issues we deal with today, not only in the world, but in the church. And that is people attempting to be equal with God or set themselves up above God. They would never say that. You ask a churchgoer today, most churchgoers, if you, would you set yourself up above God or make yourself? Oh, no. But the decisions they make, the choices they make, the places they go, they have set themselves above God. And they have said, I know God loves me. I know God wouldn't. I know my God. And when I hear somebody say, my God, my ears perk up because I'm about to hear some baloney. (laughs) And several other words you could attach to that. Because my God tells me that they have created their God however they wanted him to be. And they've adjusted him to their desires. They've adjusted him to their opinions and and to, they have tried to reason and rationalize God. You can't do that. As a result of this sin, as a result of this disobedience, both by Eve and Adam, as a matter of fact, Paul writes, I think it's in Timothy, that Eve was deceived, but Adam blatantly sinned. Puts the onus on Adam. Anytime I have a young couple or any couple in my office, for marital counseling, I always look the guy in the face. It's on you, dude. Even even if she's completely wrong, it's on you. Now, I know they don't like that, but you know what? I hadn't lost one minute of sleep over that. <laughs> and won't. So as a result of this disobedience and this sin, Romans tells us, Paul writes, the judgment following one trespass brought condemnation. The judgment, everybody say judgment. judgment. We don't like God being a God who, who dispenses judgment 
But he is. You know why he dispenses judgment? Because he loves us. Not that he hates us. Not that he wants to eliminate us. Not that he wants to move us out of the way. His judgment is his mercy. The judgment following one trespass, that of Adam, brought condemnation. And it's as if Paul wanted to make sure we got that. Because two verses later, he says this. One trespass led to condemnation for all men or all mankind. One trespass led to condemnation for all mankind. We were doomed. You were doomed. I was doomed. Because of that one, that moment when Adam and Eve chose to disobey blatantly exactly what God had told them to not do. And yet they did it anyway. Why did they do that? Because the serpent convinced them you can be like God. You can, you can set yourself up, up above God and go ahead and eat of that fruit. And so this is a precursor to what we'll talk about in a moment, but God then uh, in uh, uh, Genesis 3:21 it says in the Lord God made for Adam and for his wife garments of skins and clothed him where you think the skins came from from an animal. So we have garments of skin, something had to die so that they could have clothes. They had, they had sewn fig leaves together. Evidently that didn't work. Some of the things I see today that some people wear uh, look like fig leaves. So maybe we need some skins. I don't know. Lord help us. Some, anyway, I'm not going to get off on that, but I just want to point out again, precursor to what we'll talk about in a moment, but God shows us that something, some animal had to die. For him to provide clothing for Adam and Eve. And here we are in the Garden of Eden. Of course, they're expelled. Which brings us, and we have to talk about the justice of God. If we're going to understand this condition that has to be met, we have to understand the justice of God. Um, Pastor Daniel Hyde explains it as well as anyone. Uh, this, this appeared in the Table Talk magazine of Ligonier Ministries. It says, because God cannot cease to be either merciful or just, his justice requires that each and every one of our sins we have committed against his infinite majesty be punished with temporal and eternal punishments of soul and body. He cannot cease to be merciful or just because he is who he is. Malachi teaches us, the Lord says, I, the Lord, do not change. Of course, he goes on to say, therefore, you're not consumed, which is a good thing. The Lord cannot change. The Lord is who he is. His nature is settled. It always has been. I can't fathom. I can't, you know, where did God come from? I don't know. He's always been. He's always been. But he's always been merciful. And he's always been just. And he's always required some something from those who have sinned. And he said, we, the sins we committed had to be punished with temporal and eternal punishment of soul 
and body. And this is the dilemma we found ourselves in. This is where the, the conditional atonement comes in because God's just nature would not allow our sin to continue. And he could not just wink at it. He could not just do what some of us parents do, give in. Oh, well, I feel bad for them. They tried. He could, it's not that he didn't want to do that. He couldn't do that. He could not just say, oh, we just forget about that because of his just nature. It just couldn't happen. And so he reveals himself. I'm not going to turn, but in, in Exodus 34, he reveals his nature to Moses. This is, this is not, you know, the whole Bible teaches us about who God is, what is his character, what is his nature. But this is God himself speaking to Moses and showing us who he really is. And he gives these descriptions of himself. He is merciful, full of grace or gracious, slow to anger. By the way, take note that God is not the fact that, let's say it this way, God does get angry. He's slow to anger, but he does get angry. He's abounding in steadfast love. He's a God of faithfulness. He's a God who keeps covenant, and it even says he keeps covenant to a thousand generations. He's a God who is forgiving. Now, if we stopped right there, we would have a pretty good picture of who God is. Merciful, full of grace, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love, faithfulness. He keeps covenant, and he's forgiving. But he goes on, and he says one more thing about his nature. By no means clearing the guilty. I'm all of these things, but I'm also a God who cannot just clear the guilty. Something, some condition had to be met for him to be able to clear us from our guilt. This is who God is. Job said it this way, if I sin, then you would take note of me. You would notice me and would not acquit me of my guilt. Would not acquit me of my guilt. Just prior to that, Job said this, I know that you will not acquit me. So here we are standing before God as a race of people, mankind, guilty of the sin in the garden. And I'll say it, I've said it a thousand times, I'll say it again. You say, well, Adam and Eve, they hadn't messed up, we'd be okay today. You and I would have done the same thing they did, we would have just done it sooner. You know good and well we would have. I know that you will not acquit me. So I'm standing before God. He cannot acquit me because of who he is. He cannot acquit you because he is a God who by no means will clear the guilty. Can by no means clear the guilty. Here's this God with a just nature, a just character, and we've got a problem. And the problem is that we as a race of people were the the, uh, the a wretched race of sinners. So I don't like you talking like that. I don't care. I really don't because it's the truth. Habakkuk says you cannot look upon wickedness or wrongdoing. He can't even look on it. He can't be associated with it. This is why when Jesus is hanging on the cross and he has become 
the embodiment of sin. He has taken upon himself this, not just the sins, but the sin of all humanity. At that moment, he's hanging on the cross. The Bible says he became sin. I think we'll have that verse later. But the Bible says he was hanging on his cross. And, and at this moment, I believe he becomes the very embodiment of all of our sin. He takes it upon himself. And this is why he cries out. He quotes Psalm 22, but he cries out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why have you forsaken me? So here's what we know. In that moment, God had forsaken the son. The word forsaken there is really just a word that means that to be to abandon or desert. So think about it. In that moment, Jesus is hanging on the cross. He's the embodiment of your sin and my sin. At that moment, God the Father looks away. God the Father causes a separation. What caused the separation? It's not that God said, well, I'm walking away and leaving you alone. It's that God's just nature would not allow him to embrace the Son while the Son was the embodiment of sin. And so at that moment, Jesus was abandoned and deserted by God the Father all alone. Now we're starting to see the condition. His conditional atonement. He teaches us in Leviticus seventeen eleven. For the life of the flesh is in the blood. And I have given it for you on the altar to make atonement For your souls, for, watch this, it is the blood that makes atonement by the life. It is the blood that makes atonement by the life. The writer of Hebrews in 9.22 quotes this verse. Without the shedding of blood, there is no remission of sins. Why is the shedding of blood so important? Because the requirement, the condition is... There must be a life for a life. A life for a life. The condition of God's just nature must be satisfied. And the only way God's just nature could be satisfied is that one life takes the place of another life. Which why the garments of skin were a precursor of what we were going to see. And God said, it's the blood, it's the life is in the blood. It's the blood that makes the atonement. It's the life of the other person or animal that makes the atonement. And we see, of course, in the old covenant, down through the ages, we see the priest making sacrifices of doves and pigeons and cows and all these things. And this was nothing more, and I think I'll read a verse in a moment. This was nothing more than a shadow of what was to come. A guy we all know, Charles Simpson, in his contribution to the Spirit-Filled Life Bible, one of his contributions, says this, The new covenant in Christ's blood fulfilled the requirements, the condition of the old covenant for redemption. The blood of Christ is seen as surpassing the blood sacrifices of the old covenant and eternally, everybody say eternally. That's a long time. Eternally satisfying the requirements or the conditions of a holy God. 
the blood of Christ, the life of Christ for our life. As I said earlier, the writer of Hebrews says there are those, the priests of the day, who offer the gifts according to the law, who serve a copy and shadow of the heavenly things. A copy and a shadow. So all of the the ceremonial activities taking place under the old covenant were a copy and a shadow of what was to come and a copy and a shadow of what was in heaven. Told Moses, build the tabernacle and build it according to the pattern that I will give you. The pattern he gave him was the pattern of the heavenly tabernacle. Copy and a shadow. Hebrews 9.9, we're not going to turn, teaches us that the old covenant ceremonies were symbolic for the present age. They were symbolic. They were a copy of the shadow. They were symbolic for what was to come. Yes, there were animals giving their life and it was a temporary solution. But more than that, it was prophesying into the future. I told you earlier I was going to turn to Hebrews 10. If you want to turn, you're welcome to. If you're looking at the notes on the YouVersion app, they will be there. Uh, Everybody else, I hope you got it memorized. I'm just going to read the first four verses, and I wanted to read them because it's so so clear. The writer says, For since the law has but a shadow of the good things to come, Shadow. Everybody say shadow. Instead of the true form of these realities, it can never, by the same sacrifices that are continually offered every year, make perfect those or complete those who draw near. Otherwise, would they not have ceased to be offered? Since the worshipers, having once been cleansed, would no longer have any consciousness of sins. If this was such a good system... All it would take was one sacrifice and everybody would be. But in these sacrifices, verse 3, there is a reminder of sins every year. Verse 4, for it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. It's impossible. Even though God instituted the system, even though God said, this is what I want you to do, ultimately we realize that the blood of those animals, bulls, goats, whatever it might be, could not and it will never take away our sins. It's impossible. So here we are in the new covenant, and we need that condition to be met. And then we see Palm Sunday. Jesus comes riding in Jerusalem. On a donkey. And of course there's a whole story there. Go get the donkey. And anybody says what are you doing taking my donkey? Uh, and actually if you look. Do a little careful study. There were actually two. A mother and a colt. And tell them I need. The son of man needs it. And of course they did. And and, and they hear he's riding in. Which, which was a fulfillment of a prophecy of Zechariah. But Jesus comes riding in. And it's, we, we refer to this as the triumphal entry. Some of your Bibles, if you're looking there, it'll have a, maybe a, a heading title, the triumphal or a triumphant entry. Jesus' triumph was over sin and the devil, not the political enemies of Israel as they expected. They expected him to come in, annihilate Rome, get rid of everybody out of the way. And yet Jesus comes in riding basically a colt who had never been ridden. This colt, and no one had ever sat on this donkey. 
which is, of course, an image of purity. And here he, you know, they grabbed the palms and they began to declare Hosanna. They praised the Lord. Some of them, I know, some of them didn't even know what they were saying. Some of them were expecting something more or different than what they were going to see. But what they didn't know and what we know now is that the real capital R had arrived on the scene. Copy shadow, symbolic testimony, real. Capital R, real. As they were proclaiming and watching the fulfillment of this, of Zechariah 9 9, maybe they thought about it, maybe they didn't, but Zechariah 9 9 says this, partly anyway, your king is coming to you. Your king is coming to you. That was obviously Old Testament. And here he rides into the city, the king. Not grasping to be a king, not, not trying to, uh, gain, as, as Kevin said, he really went away from that. He really tried to escape them making him a king. Part of the reason for that was he was already a king. Hebrews 9, I'm just turning back, just you don't have to turn if you want to. But anyway, it says, but when Christ appeared as a high priest of the good things that have come, then through the greater and more perfect tent or tabernacle, he entered once for all into the holy places, not by the means of blood of goats and calves. By his own blood, it says, by his own blood, that's in 9, 11 through 14 if you're taking notes. By his own blood, he entered into that place where he would meet the condition of God the Father. And when, in so doing, it says that he was securing our eternal redemption. He was the one, he was the only one who could meet that condition. Of God the Father. He was the one. That became the eternal Passover lamb for us. Never needing to be sacrificed again. Never needing to be crucified again. He was meeting the conditions in our place. God was not acquitting us. God did not acquit you. God did not take out an eraser. And remove your sin. Like it never happened. It happened. And God could not do his just nature. He could not do that. It had to be atoned for. Something or someone had to pay the price. Someone had to suffer the death penalty. Now, it was either going to be you or me, or it was going to be something or someone else. And thus, riding into that city that day on that donkey was God himself. In the flesh, Emmanuel, riding into that city that day was not only God himself, he was human. So here we have a human paying the price for humanity, but this human just happened to be God, which meant he was without sin. He was the perfect and spotless sacrifice for your sin and for mine. And that's the only way. God's condition could be met. 
And he began, he, in so doing, he was reconciling, reconciling us to himself. He was taking humanity, those of us who would, would accept and receive that salvation. Reconciliation means to, to bring two opposing or warring sides together in peace. Romans 5, I believe it is, teaches that we were enemies of God. You say, well, I wasn't an enemy of God. Yeah, you were. You might not have declared to be one, but your life spoke of one who was enemies of God. And that's because we had gone beyond the bounds of God's law. Adam and Eve did that in the garden. They went beyond the bounds of God's law. They had violated, we have violated God's directions. God's orders, I said last week, Jesus' own words said, if you love me, you'll keep my commandments. So you say, if I'm unwilling to be obedient to his commandments, then I can't really say that I love God. I didn't say that. Jesus said that. That's in red ink. I know people get all excited about red ink. I met with some guys one time, and and they said, well, I'm only interested in the red ink. Rest of it, you can keep. I don't want. To. I said, "Do you understand? All sixty-six books are the inspired word of God, not just the red ink." I mean, I understand Jesus' own words carry some importance, but Paul's writings and Peter's writings and James' writings are just as anointed as Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. And you have one verse in Acts that's in red ink. Therefore, because we had violated his his directions. We had come under his judgment and punishment. And when we, we could not, we could not escape, we cannot escape because we cannot make satisfaction to that kind of justice. There was no way possible. We tried. All humanity tried, but there was no way possible to make that kind of satisfaction to that kind of justice. We could not satisfy God. Therefore, Christ stands in our place and takes upon himself the infinite justice of God for us in our place. And the truth is, this is what this season, this time of year, this is the emphasis of where we are now is that we lead into Holy Week, crucifixion, and ultimately resurrection. God was in Christ in those moments And I said we was going to quote this verse again. He made the one who knew no sin to become, and I don't like the word A there, to become sin or a sin offering on our behalf so that in him, in Christ, we might become the righteousness of God. He became sin. The condition had been met. The condition admit our sin has been atoned for and we have been reconciled to God the Father because of the substitute. After all, that involved the meeting of God's condition. The Father, through the power of the Holy Spirit, resurrected Jesus back to life, vindicating him in the sight of all heaven. All that he had gone through, all that he had suffered, all that he had taken upon himself, the sin of mankind, 
Ultimately, when he is placed in the tomb of Joseph of Arimathea, ultimately God says, okay, it's done. The work is completed. Now let's vindicate the son. And the Holy Spirit in, in interjects life, and that's the understatement of the, of the century, into the, into the lifeless, dead body of Jesus Christ. And he, he is raised from the dead, being vindicated in the sight of all heaven. Luke writes in Acts, but God released him from the horrors of death and raised him back to life. For death could not keep him in its grip. The resurrection was a vindication from the wrongful verdict that had been issued against him by the sinful human court. And it was a declaration of his righteousness. Wrongful. Think about it. Wrongful verdict. I said a few weeks ago, I used to sing a song by Gordon Jensen wrote called, I Should Have Been Crucified. I think I might have included that in one of the kernels of truth recently. I should have hung on that cross in shame. That should have been me. That should have been you hanging on that cross. And yet somebody took your place. They said, Jesus Christ, God's son took my place. He took your place. So we celebrate this whole season. We celebrate year-round, but we emphasize this time of year, the work of Christ, the condition that he met that we could not meet, so that you and I can walk in forgiveness of sin. We can walk and live as the righteousness of God in Jesus Christ. It's time for me to stop. Dismissed. Should have just started dancing. That's pretty good music. <laughs> but it's this time of year that we uh, emphasize and, and, and embrace the work of Jesus. And also, especially next Sunday, well, anytime, but especially next Sunday, we rejoice in the fact that God vindicated him. And, and he, I don't know if he walked out of the tomb or flew out. I don't know. Well, somehow he got out. I love the fact that he folded his head cloth nice and neat. OCD people, we love that thing. <laughs> it was right there on the... Let's not forget. Let's not forget ever, but especially during this time of year, that God's condition of atonement was met on our behalf by the Son of God himself. Stand with me.